This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, February 22nd. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Mountain Village discusses 644 deed restriction. Capital Conversation talks health care. New work of note from Aubrey Mabel. And a mountain weather forecast. But first, Egner lost a member of its community over the weekend. On Saturday morning, Eddie James passed away at his home surrounded by family. He was 29 years old. According to the San Miguel County Coroner's Office, James loved the outdoors and his adopted family. The cause and manner of death are under investigation. Ertl Funeral Home will attend to services. James is survived by his grandparents, Ed and Maxine, his siblings, Willie, Hayden, and Christopher, and his parents, Christopher and Mary. Qualifications for Mountain Village's latest for-sale affordable housing project are coming into focus. Last month, Town Council identified a number of restrictions and allowances for purchasing a deed-restricted home in the Lot 644 development, a 29-unit project in the Meadows. We weren't going to have remote workers. Businesses would be eligible to purchase uh, subject to a lottery process that, um, that the way that waterfall would probably work would put them at the bottom. Uh, we would add a 13-month lease provision to uh, any business that was going to go ahead and rent in order to create more of a sense of community uh, throughout the development. That's Mountain Village Town Manager Paul Weiser presenting before Town Council last week. But there are some issues that we still need to focus on. Those issues are largely where can someone work and be eligible for the lottery, how should the lottery work, and should there be a price cap on reselling homes? First, where can someone work and be eligible? The majority of deed-restricted homes in Mountain Village are eligible to individuals who work in the Telluride R1 school district. But Councilmember Marty Prohaska wonders if individuals who work in any part of San Miguel County should qualify. The west end of the county is becoming more, you know, vibrant economically. Um, There is the potential for there to be the reverse commute. So I think it is something to contemplate whether... If there's any benefit of having it be the county rather than the school district. I mean, there's a clinic, there's a dentist, there's, there are professional jobs in Norwood okay. that, that I think benefit our community as a whole. And, you know, I mean, and I- there is a desire for people to be able to live in this district because of the school. Councilmember Harvey Mogensen disagrees. I would limit it to the R1 school district as far as the employment, primarily because we're spending our tax dollars and we should be promoting employment, people who work for employers that are in, at least in the general proximity. Council floated the idea of including San Miguel County and the R1 school district, which for the moment overlaps, but could include RICO in the future if it is annexed into the school district. Next, the lottery process. Here's Wiser. We are going to go through a lottery to sell these units. And as the deed restriction is currently drafted, um, there would be a essentially a number of, for lack of a better term, tickets that are delegated to people. And so the first tier would be what is t- currently defined as an essential worker. Then the next one being a qualified buyer who's a resident in town. And then Anyone who uh, works for a business in the R1 school district, 
And then finally, anyone else. So essentially, a business um, could get a ticket in the lottery. Weiser says based on an individual's qualifications, they could get more balls in the lottery. For being an essential worker, for working in Mountain Village, the list goes on. But some members of council are uncomfortable with the fact that even with more balls in the hopper, someone with only one ball could still win. Here's council member Dan Caton. What about just giving a certain number of points, sort of what you implied there, um, and stack them up? And then you just list everybody in order of points, in effect, and you go to each one and say, okay, what do you want? Can you afford it? Okay, if you can't, you're off the list. And we go on down that way. Weiser says council is welcome to conduct a lottery in that manner. Finally, a price cap on resale. Currently, there is a cap written into the draft deed restriction, noting an owner could not sell their home for more than a percentage of the original purchase price. That price cap could increase if an owner made substantial improvements to the home and had them approved by the town. But Mayor Leila Benitez isn't comfortable with that. This is all starting to seem very invasive. I'm not really not on board with the direction we're taking here. It's just and I understand I'm probably the odd one out, but this is the biggest investment people are ever going to make in their life, and it's how people have moved for generations. This is how Americans have built wealth and stability um, for one generation to the next. And so I feel like putting a max on it and being the only, only lot 644 has a max and everyone else in the neighborhood can, I just, I, I'm not on board with that. Caton is conflicted. It's, it's difficult because we want it to stay reasonably affordable. On the other hand, um, you know, the market tells us what's affordable and what's not affordable. And, you know, if nobody wants to buy these places, then we've got a, uh, we've got <laughs> the market has, has spoken. But Mogensen notes he shifted his thinking when it comes to the cap. I'll be honest and say I started off strongly in favor of no caps because I said, well, let the market dictate what, you know, what the affordability is and so forth. But I've heard a lot of smart people tell me that the market isn't working and it hasn't worked from, from the affordability perspective. So I would be in favor of some type of cap. Um, just we can set it a higher number or some other number, but I would be in favor of some type of cap just because I've been convinced that the market's not not working properly. Town Council didn't come to a conclusion on the eligible work area, lottery process or price cap, but plans to discuss the items further at their meeting in March. The Colorado legislature is taking up health this session, from opioids to abortion. In this installment of Capital Conversation, KOTO State House reporter Lucas Brady-Woods shares the latest. Thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to kind of touch base on a number of bills. The first two, I guess, would look at fentanyl and and what happens to people who either have it on their person or know someone who um, overdoses. Can you share what those two bills would do? Right. So they're they're pretty much opposite, you know, the one that would add protections for people who report overdoses does exactly that. 
it would increase the immunity that some people already have from prosecution if they report an overdose. What this bill does is it expands that immunity to possession of substances like fentanyl of up to four grams, and it would also expand that immunity to uh, some distribution. But the thing is that those crimes that they would be immune from have to be related to the overdose situation itself. So it can't be some crime that happened before or after this incident that they could get immunity from. It would just be for that situation. But essentially, the, the bill is trying to, you know, alleviate some fears that people have when reporting really, you know, fatal overdoses or overdoses that can be fatal. That first bill is a Democrat-sponsored bill, and then this next one is a Republican-sponsored bill, and it's billed as an opioid harm reduction bill, but I think that title is a little misleading. It actually would increase penalties for people who are caught in possession of fentanyl and other opioids. Basically, what this bill would do is it would increase those penalties by removing a provision that previously would have made people less liable if they did not know they were in possession. This bill would take away that. So even if somebody possessed controlled substance like fentanyl unknowingly, they would still face a felony charge. Got it. You know, it's it's interesting. I think that, you know, most people, regardless of your political affiliation, um, would say that we have a crisis in our communities and, and want to do what works best to help keep people safe and limit the use of fentanyl. But these are kind of approaching it from two separate um, pathways. These could both pass in theory. And if they both did, kind of how does that go into play? Yeah, that, that's interesting. I believe the language of the opioid reporting bill would supersede the language of the opioid penalty increase bill. That's just from my rating of the bills. But I believe that both could pass and could work together, but I I would assume that would create some potentially confusing situations for law enforcement. Right. The next kind of cluster of bills that I wanted to talk with you about looks at limiting abortion in the state of Colorado. These are bills that were presented by Republicans. And given the super majority in, in the House and the strong majority in the Senate from Democrats, we can pretty confidently assume that these bills won't end up making it to the governor's desk or getting that signature. So can you talk a little bit of what these bills are, but then also, you know, what's the rationale? What's the thought behind introducing these bills in the first place, especially because they probably won't go anywhere? Yeah, one of them was going to outright ban abortions in Colorado. Now that bill was shut down after quite a bit of testimony from witnesses on both sides, but that did not make it past committee, and neither did the other two bills, which were uh, one of them would have mandated that fetuses receive painkillers before an abortion, even though there's not really any scientific evidence to say that fetuses can feel pain. And then the other one would have required doctors to offer information on abortion pill reversals to patients. And again, there's no scientific evidence that abortion pill reversals are possible. Even though these bills were expected to fail, Republicans still brought them forward, you know, and and the outright abortion ban has been brought forward a number of times over the years here at the legislature, and it has always failed. Uh, That bill in particular was brought forward by a lawmaker 
who is also a pastor and he's very conservative, you know, he feels that he needs to make a stand, even if the bills die, make a stand for what he says are his beliefs and uh, the beliefs of his constituents. So a lot of these are statement pieces that the sponsors know are not going to pass, but it's still their their job and their view to put these forward. Um, recognizing that all the bills that we've talked about so far today have um, been maybe more partisan than some that we've spoke about in the past. Have you seen any moments of nice bipartisanship over the past week? Yeah, you know, there there has been a moment of bipartisanship, actually, in the face of some backlash. Um, an interesting bill passed the House, which is the uh, right for farmers and ranchers to repair their own agriculture equipment, as opposed to having to go to, directly to a manufacturer or a, an authorized dealer for that. Now, that was sponsored by a Republican and a Democrat. Representative Weinberg is a Republican and Representative Tatone is a Democrat. And I talked to Weinberg and he said that, you know, he really supports this bill because it's what he hears from his constituents. Weinberg and only one other Republican voted for this bill. And of course, Weinberg is, is one of the sponsors. So, you know, he got a lot of backlash from the other Republicans. But despite that, and despite his opposition to government action on things like this, he listened to his constituents and he supported this bill because he thinks it's really important. So that was, we can say, a bipartisan and sort of nonpartisan thing that came up over the last week, which is pretty nice. Yeah. Um, Well, Lucas, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today, and we'll check in with you again next week. Thank you so much for having me, as always. That was KOTO's Lucas Brady-Woods reporting from Denver. Telluride Arts and the Augment Music Project have teamed up to fund area musicians in a whole range of new projects. Koto News took the opportunity to speak with a handful of the grantees. Today, singer-songwriter Aubrey Mabel, one half of the duo Lady, discusses her new solo instrumental project, The Open Sea. Aubrey Mabel, and I am so excited today to be talking a little bit about my upcoming project, which is called The Open Sea. While I was on my honeymoon in Greece, um, I took a film photo just of the ocean, just vast in the distance. I got this idea to, to record all those songs in an open sea tuning on the guitar, which is very different from a normal tuning. It's, um, to me, it's the most beautiful tuning. It's something that when I sit down with my guitar in open C, it feels like you can't play a bad note. I started to write instrumental loops on my acoustic guitar during the pandemic when I was very much feeling a lack of inspiration with words and I didn't quite know what to say. It didn't really feel like there was anything worth saying. It also didn't feel like my moment to say anything. So I just kind of started to sit down and process what was happening around me through these instrumental, very meditative acoustic guitar loops. 
other hopes for the project and just, I think, hopes for the future of myself and my instrumental music is I would love to partner with filmmakers and start to create scores to documentaries and movies. And um, there's an artist named Goth Babe. I don't know if you've heard of him or anyone knows him, but I just saw recently earlier this year, he was at the Banff Film Festival and he created the soundtrack to a surfing film that he got to play on stage while the film was playing behind him. You know, I feel really inspired by artists like that who are creating these soundscapes to match um, visual art as well and, and storytelling in that way. Having the support financially from Augment and Telluride Arts is huge because it allows me, you know, to not be taking so much out of my own pocket for the project. And it also encourages me to really pay attention to the details and, and to be proud of what I'm producing and excited also to share it with the community. I just hope that these songs reach the people that need them and that they bring you a moment of peace in your day, even if that's, you know, for the two minutes and 30 seconds that it's playing, you felt peace and you felt calm. That would be a win in my book. That was Aubrey Mabel discussing her upcoming project, The Open Sea. Mabel's music can also be found under the duo act, Lady. Citing a need to be closer to family in Montana, Chris Darnell is leaving his position as CEO of the Telluride Regional Medical Center. Darnell will stay in the position until April, while the Med Center works to hire a new CEO or find an interim solution. The Telluride Hospital District's Board of Directors report they are still working out the exact plans for the transition, but say patients will experience no disruption in their access to care. Darnell has served as CEO since only last September. His departure will reopen the hospital district's search for a leader. Darnell announced his departure in an email to staff, writing his decision has, quote, everything to do with my children who are in school in Bozeman. He goes on to express gratitude for his short time with the Med Center. The Telluride AIDS Benefit Fashion Week is upon us, and the Tab Fashion Show debuts Thursday night, February 23rd, at the Telluride Conference Center in Mountain Village. The show runs again Friday and Saturday at 7 p.m. nightly with doors at 6. Tab is celebrating its 30th year of raising funds and awareness for HIV prevention, both here in Colorado and across the globe. The show features local models outfitted by designers from all over the U.S., other Fashion Week events include a sample sale at the AHA School, cocktail parties in a brunch to mingle with designers and choreographers, and pop-up shops in galleries along Main Street. The Saturday show is sold out. Tickets for other shows and events can be found at TellurideAidsBenefit.org. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for heavy snow tonight with a low near zero degrees and wind chill values as low as negative 15. Wind gusts could reach 45 miles per hour. Wind and snow showers are likely to continue Thursday with gusts as high as 40 miles per hour and a high temperature near 20 degrees. 
Thursday night calls for snow showers and a low near 15. A chance of snow continues into Friday with wind gusts near 45 miles per hour and a low near 30. Friday night should be mostly cloudy with a low near 15. This has been the news for Wednesday, February 22nd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.